we've had a real focus on making sure that we are explaining to those clients that, oh, hey, we're also over in this area. Because they often don't think about all that Endeavor does. They think of us as the brands that they are used to doing business with. In the other sector, they may or may not know the brands that we have. And so we've had some good success this past year at at sort of expanding the, the notion across our clients about what we can do for them and being intentional about explaining to them all the different industry verticals that we're in. Welcome to season four of Perpetual, where you'll get the hottest takes and insights on what's happening in the constantly shifting world of media and marketing. I'm Adam Ryan. Let's go. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Yeah, you too. Uh, Context was we met in New York at the Media Operator Summit where you were presenting. And between you and Craig Fuller, there was not more two interesting people. And at the end of the night, I was blown away by learning about the business and was excited to potentially have you on the podcast and introduce you to my audience. So thanks for coming on. Who knew that Tennessee would be the center of the B2B uh, segment of the media operator? It, huh? It's quite, uh, I'm going to talk <laughs> about that. I, I think it was so unironic that we all had to fly to New York to have a bunch of people not from New York to talk about the leading edge of media cases. So, right. But it was great for Jacob to bring us together. It so. was without a doubt. Well, Endeavor is now, uh, if you want to give a little background, but you're about five years, a little over five years old right. and you're covering a, an array of of B2B verticals across media and then content, events, trade shows, et cetera. But before we get into Endeavor, I'd love to just know a little bit about like, why did you choose B2B? Like you've been in media for a while and led numerous teams, never in that space necessarily. What made you see that overlooked opportunity? That's a nice way of trying to say I'm getting old. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Wise, wise, my friend, you're wise. Yeah, no, you know, I mean, I I started in media in the late 90s with an internet startup called City Search. And, you know, I tell people that uh, my original job was to explain to people what the internet was and uh, why they would want a website. And then wound up in alt-weeklies. So first running a a paper called The Nashville Scene that was owned by Village Voice. And then uh, later built a group of of alt-weeklies including like creative loafing in Atlanta and the Washington city paper in, in DC. Um, that business came increasingly under pressure as classifieds moved online. And, and then, you know, as it was better for our clients to go to Yelp or other, you know, national platforms. And so I started looking around at the you know, media landscapes and how do I apply these skills to something that's a, bit, a little bit better business and came across B2B media. And I was like, well, it's all the same skills that we had, in niche local media, it's just, it's a much better, much better business model. And so about 2014, I acquired my first B2B media brands and really haven't looked back. I think the correlation of, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that aren't in B2B. And I say it all the time though, there's a lot of similarities of If you're creating niche content consumer or B2B, there's a lot of similarities for you. What was that like overlap skill set that you really saw? Like, Hey, I can, even though I don't know anything about this maybe very unique niche topic potentially why did why what was the skill set overlap from the other side that you had and possessed well i mean at the most basic level you know producing publications on a regular cadence you know we were doing newsletters we were doing lots of digital only content we were producing events you know we might have been selling bourbon and beer as opposed to 
selling submarines and cabling, but um, but it was the same idea of bringing together the right audience who was interested in you know buying what our clients were trying to sell to them. We'll talk about some of the categories in a bit. It's absolutely you know the context switching. I, I loved a little know about you know as you went into these spaces. The first question you asked me was, "Hey, how do you choose your verticals?" Uh, when we met, and I told you my answer, but. Uh, I'd love to to hear, like, how did you end up choosing yours? And particularly, is there any difference of management with cabling to submarines? Do you have to treat any differently? I sort of took a buy then build approach. So I was looking at industries where the B2B world was very fragmented, where there wasn't sort of a single dominant player and focused on those, but I also wanted industries that sort of had a long, a good long-term growth trajectory. We have some brands that we sort of think of as cash cow brands where the, you know, the sub verticals, not a, not really growing, but it's stable. And then others that we classify as growth where we, you know, are investing in, in sort of building out that segment. Cause we think over the long haul, you know, that that segment is getting bigger and bigger. And so I sort of tried to pick verticals where I thought, you know, there was a lot of opportunity for us to do acquisitions, put together a group that could be an industry leader in that space. So we pick places like manufacturing transportation and energy um, and have been doing acquisitions over the last five and a half years to you know sort of build out industry leading audiences in those verticals so were you really assessing like hey there's there's a bunch of like people in second place here and we don't see a category leader and then trying to roll that up to have a first place that's right like i didn't go into you know hosp- hotels and hospitality because i was like there's some really strong players in this space and i you know i'm not going to go in and get beat up there I'm going to pick some places where there's not a clear leader, you know, where there are lots of lots of small players. And if I can put a couple of those together, I can build the leader for this vertical. For leaders, did you define that by like revenue, I'd assume? Is that like or, you know, with trade shows, sometimes it's attendance. I'm just curious about like what was the kind of like through line of, of how you recognize between like a first and second place? I think of it. Primarily as audience, but revenue is correlated, obviously. So, yeah, I mean, so as a, as a proxy, sometimes you have to go for revenue until you can. Nobody tells you the exact size of their audience until you, you know, sign NDAs. <laughs> you don't need to disclose if it's unique or total visits. Uh, it's OK. We'll get there. Well, uh, and then, you know, when you said you're you were in a buy versus build mode and you used private equity to get started, can you give the audience a little bit of background of like, I think your story of, of what they told you and, and how you got back into it is, is quite funny. Can you give a little background of, of really how you got Endeavor started with, with the capital side? Sure. Uh, sometimes this is a funnier story told at a bar than it probably is on a well, podcast. That's where I heard uh, it. So uh, it's okay. <laughs> at nine in the morning, it might sound different, but I still appreciate it. All right. So, uh, yeah. So when I set out to build the company, I, I started talking to some local private equity, debt and equity uh, uh, players in, in Nashville that had some experience in the space. I really wanted them as my investor. And they said, we, you know, we don't do pure startups. And that's why I said, OK, <laughs> you know, I'll be right back. And I, I went and found some investors who had worked with me on a previous company who were willing to uh, sort of loan me some money and guarantee some bank debt and let me do my first acquisition. Went and bought a couple of titles. It was a carve out from Grandview. And so I had a company with 20 employees and three publications. Then I came back to them and said, okay, now we're an operating, you know, operating company. We're not a startup anymore. We're not a startup anymore. We, we, we now have, you know, we have revenue, we have employees, uh, we're off and running and Hey, now I've got this line of things that I want to acquire. 
And uh, they, you know, we closed that first transaction in January. They made their investment in May. We did another another series of transactions in June and I think September, October, November. And, you know, by the end of the year, we were doing $30 million of revenue our first year in operation. That alone is something that's, that's uh, you don't hear that too often in media today. Also profitably, right? Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't buying things that were broken. Well, I I think though, that's the, that's what I, I I think the audience learning this a little bit about today is like, there's really three things that have, it's so impressive with what you're doing. One, there's this negative perception of private equity and media, and you clearly have found the right investors in some capacity that allows you to make the decisions that you need to, uh, and run business as how you need to. And there's probably a lesson there of how to like work with private equity in a way that allows you to run a great business. But the second one is the speed and velocity that you've done this. You did 30 million in year one, this year in year five, I think at the conference you said you're around 160. 165, yeah. And really great net margins on that as well. And I asked you this question because this is what I was so impressed with is how do you not, even if you're not buying things that are broken, how do you not break them through integration with that sort of velocity? Like, what have you been doing <laughs> uh, to avoid those to stay the path? Well, I mean, we had a very, you know, sort of clear process about how we integrated acquisitions. I mean, things do still get broken. You just fix them quickly, you know, if you realize that you're that you're messing something up. I mean, one of the, the biggest challenges is a lot of times things that we bought, you know, were, were small companies that had limited revenue streams, you know, sometimes they're doing, you know, they're, they're selling products that you don't want to sell long-term, like, like click lead programs, for example, right. You know, cause you're wearing out their database. And so you do sometimes take a hit in the short term when you sort of, tr- when you quickly transition them off of products that, you know, you don't think are long-term good, viable products and start trying to shift their clients to something else. But Ultimately, I'm buying them for the audience that they bring to the table, you know, that I'm trying to build out these these industry leading audiences. And so that's why I'm buying them. And then we have confidence that our suite of products is it work for clients. And so converting them over, we'll get there with it. You know, so sometimes, but sometimes they do take a step back for a year or two until you can sort of get them shifted over into the, you know, convince their clients to try these new products. And there's one aspect to have. And that's what a great career does. You clearly have a little roadmap of like, here are the suite of products that we want to use. If we have an audience that has good purchasing power, engaged, we know these. Right. Then there's this other side of acquisitions called people that tend to probably be the hardest part of these things at times. How have you really sustainably, you've done 25 acquisitions thus far? Right. How have you sustainably been able to develop the team in a way with over 500 employees that it doesn't feel fragmented and broken there. You know, it's a tricky thing. I mean, early on doing those acquisitions, you know, we did a lot of acquisitions our first two years. And, you know, there were a lot of people sort of saying, you know, I'm, I'm former this company and former that company. And the way sort of the silver lining of navigating through COVID in 2020 really helped form Endeavor's identity that the people who were with us then you know, as we sort of came together to navigate that crisis, I, I think it really sort of helped us form an endeavor identity and culture. And we've been very intentional about when we onboard people, either through acquisitions or through hiring them, about onboarding them to our culture and our values and, you know, sort of keep those things at the forefront. We've terminated people who didn't fit, 
that, you know, if you have people who come on board that just aren't going to, that aren't going to embrace the culture of the company, you know, you just say, you'll be better off somewhere else. You'll be happier. We'll be happier. But we've also had really good success sort of attracting, you know, talented people from throughout the B2B industry, uh, you know, who have wanted to come to work at Endeavor. They see what we're doing. And so we've been able to find people who are a good fit, both skill set and culture wise to come on board. So we've got about 700 employees now. 700. And I think, you know, I mean, relatively low turnover, you know, I mean, for a company that size. Size is one aspect, but also it's well documented when you grow quickly, you normally also have high turnover because people just feel lost. They, uh, it's, a, it's working for a different company from 100 to 700. It feels different. It is. Um, so it is. And it feels different, I'm sure, for you, but uh, it feels different for everyone else as well. How early did you start to build out your executive team? You know, if you look at those site, you've got an amazing team and with great experience. How fast and soon did you realize, like, wow, we're going to move this pace. I have to I have to build out this team. Well, I started with, with my co-founder, Patrick Rains. He and I had worked together for a long time, uh, going back to the 90s, actually. And then the woman who had been my attorney in private practice, Tracy Kane, agreed to join us as our general counsel and now as our chief administrative and legal officer. And so the three of us have been together since the very beginning. Most of the rest of the team came by way of one of the acquisitions we did. And so one of the things we definitely realized early on was that that people who had worked in large B2B media companies were used to running large departments, um, were the kind of people that we needed to run our departments. We needed people who understood what it meant to support, you know, an organization with north of $100 million of revenue. And so... We did acquisitions in 2019 of assets that had been a part of Penwealth at one time and assets that had been uh, that came from Informa that had been a, a part of Penton and UBM. And so with those acquisitions, uh, either through the acquisitions or through people that they used to work with, a lot of our department heads are people who came from, you know, sort of the previous generation of the leading B2B, you know, companies where they had run departments at Penton or Informa or Penwell. Cygnus, some of those kind of places. And so, yeah, we built a team of people who knew how to run sort of a scaled operation. When you think about the culture of the business, because I mean, at this point, 160 million, 700 employees, uh, five years old, you're, if not the fastest, the fastest growing media company out there, Whether and despite build or buy, you clearly you're spitting off money, you're doing well. There's, it's not an if, it's a how big now, uh, which is a, such a such a relief, I think, probably as a team that you have. But how do you kind of see your responsibility in day to day now that you've built out a team like that? I mean, your first job as a CEO is always to make sure you have the right people in the right seats. And as you grow, sometimes that changes, you know, roles, roles evolve and things change. But then, you know, secondly, it's, you know, what does this business need to look like, you know, five years down the road? A lot of the small business we bought were still very print centric. And so, you know, those you launch into sort of a print to digital conversion, you know, because over the long haul, you know, that's where they're going to be valuable. I've said many times this business was built to be resilient, not fast growing, right? Um, in that we offer a full range of marketing uh, tactics for our clients. And so wherever, however they want to spend their money, we can do it for them. So we're not you know, even though digital makes up half of our revenue, we're not purely a, you know, a digital company, you know, we still, we still do print. We are trying to build, but I'm trying to build, 
you know, the revenue streams that will be more valuable and more enduring over the long haul. And so, you know, we've got a real focus on growing our event business. I've done a couple acquisitions in the research and data space over the last year, because I see that as a place where we can really build out a, a viable leg of the, of the revenue stool in terms of both custom research and syndicated research across the verticals that we're in. And so, you know, those are the things that I'm, I'm sort of working on is how we sort of transition the business to where we're trying to be you know, five years from now. The irony of not fast, but sustainable. You did both. <laughs> uh, so, you know, one of the things I'd love to, you know, you mentioned in former UBS, you are acquiring from a range of, of stripes. Uh, and not always, but kind of traditionally, if you find the people that are doing acquisitions, they normally have one or two go-to partners. Craig is an example of this with flying and having sure. uh, having a, a relationship and then go kind of tap back into it. I mean, you're finding everyone. Right. Before you launched, you knew where you were going to go. You had ranked that. Like, how was your process of identifying and then really building those relationships to get that deal flow? You know, if someone was trying like myself, let's say, to find that next deal, like what recommendations and, and, and advice do you have for that? Well, you know, believe me, every media broker and investment banker in this space has my phone number. So, yeah. and most of them know what I'm looking for, right? I mean, like the way my capital structure was set up, you know, like I don't have the money to compete to do the big high profile deals, right? So, you know, I'm not in the bidding war to get industry dive, you know, like, uh, I mean, there's some great companies out there, but that they're, they're going to trade at much higher multiples and, and, you know, much higher price tags than I'm going to be able to afford. And so, you know, what I'm looking at are the things where there's less competition, you know, so it's the carve outs from the big media companies. It's the small mom and pops that they're ready to retire and there's not an obvious person to, you know, to take it over. So it's those kind of deals that we've been able to do. So, you know, we've done deals ranging in size from a few hundred thousand dollars to, you know, north of $50 million. And, uh, you know, sort of piece the company together that way. You know, when you think about your multiples that you're getting, especially, you know, I think there's, we talked about this, but there's just not a lot of buyers um, in general for those businesses, right. which that suppresses those multiples. But you said something at the the uh, AMO summit that in the next 18 months, uh, you see a lot of private equity holdings being released um, just due to the whole period. You want to touch on that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it, we, we are at this point in the B2B world where most of the big companies in B2B, their investors have, are near the end of the lifespan of their funds. You know, they made the investments five, six, seven years ago. The funds may have been a couple of years old then. So they're getting to the point where they need to divest these assets because they've got to return capital to their investors. And so there's going to be a lot of turnover in ownership in the big B2B companies. And so it's going to be a really interesting time for those of us in the industry to sort of see what valuations, you know, how do, how do the financial players value these companies today? And that drives valuations all up and down the, the range of companies that are sold because obviously when I see what my peer companies sell for, that's going to be sort of a number that I'm looking at yeah. to eventually cash out my investors, yeah. right? And that affects what I'm willing to pay or smaller companies that I'm that I'm acquiring because I need multiple expansion when I buy something. And so anyway, so I, I think over the next year, you know, we're going to see 
it'll be interesting to see where the where the valuations are for the, these the large, much larger these, much larger these hundred hundred million dollars sort of plus companies in the b2b space you talked about print and events and trade shows went through a rough time period now they're somewhat coming back but and what about these like you know more let's call them like micro publishers transactions are you finding less of those nowadays? Are you finding more of them? You know, where where the uh, on a on a cycle basis of of these kind of uh, previous generation publications that are now struggling to potentially move to digital or struggling to get people back into an events? How how, how have those kind of looked on the macro? There were a lot of deals in late twenty one, early twenty two. You know, people coming out of COVID, yeah. they had a nice rebound. They're like, "Okay, let me get out now before something else happens." Yeah. Uh, you know, so there were a lot of people selling over the last twelve to eighteen months. A lot less, right? I mean, as interest rates started to climb, I mean, there are fewer buyers. It was harder to put together money, and plus, you know, the the economy got a little softer in B two B in in most sectors. There are a few sectors that are doing well, but you know, lots of sectors are. They're not having banner years. So if you're selling today, you're either in one of those sectors that's doing really well, or you're or there's some reason why you feel like you have to sell. You know, you've lost some key employees or you lost some key accounts, or so there are just fewer deals out there right now. And there are fewer buyers for the small media companies right now as well. Events are really hot. Um, you know, the financial world is is back enamored with events again after COVID and their big run up over the last couple of years. And so, you know, events are trading at good multiples, media companies, a little harder to sell right now. You have more than 40 conferences and trade shows, correct? I mean, you told me the story about, uh, you have a, a fireman conference where there's a whole experiential opportunity for having that enjoyable experience, you know, from the folks doing a lot of people in this, that listen to this podcast, throw events and conferences. And it's hard to think about scale while also balancing attendee experience, like something that you hear a lot about, especially from, you know, emerging companies like ours is, hey, if we're going to try to go into this space. If we're like someone new, you have to give a good attendee experience or no one's ever going to come back. That's right. That also eats into your margin at some point. Um, you know, when you think about the different types of events that you have and let's kind of call them emerging and super mature you know, how do you think about the P&L profile of those and like what you're willing to do? Are they the same? Do you do you differ of how you think about that? I think it's important going in to know what this event looks like at maturity, right? That every event doesn't just grow into a gigantic trade show, yeah. right? That there are certain events, they're, they're designed to always be 100 people or 120 people, you know? And so, you know, we have a whole series of what we call hosted buyer conferences that are really that. They're never going to be much bigger than that. The whole experience is about connecting these buyers with these sellers in a meaningful way over 48 hours, you know? And so those aren't going to grow into a huge conference. They have a, you know, a certain profile, maybe, you know, maybe it's a half million dollar event, but it's never going to be much bigger than that. And so, you know, you grow that just by replicating it and doing it in other verticals. Um, we do have some sizable trade. Show. I mean, we don't have any giant trade shows. Those were sort of out of my price range for my my cap structure, as I was talking about, you know, but we've got some shows, you know, several shows that are over $2 million of revenue, you know, a couple thousand attendees that are trade, you know, convention center kind of trade shows. The bigger you can make those, the more profitable they become, you know, because your sort of cost of putting on the event don't Same. grow as rapidly as adding, adding more booths, right? Adding another row of booths yeah. um, or another 500 attendees or whatever. So it varies depending on, you know, but, but 
I think it's just important to know going in, like what's the capital that, you know, this, this may be a show that's only going to generate 35% margins at, you know, at maturity, you know, how long are you willing, how much and how long are you willing to invest in that to grow, you know, to grow it to that size. And so generally I think of those conferences as by year three, we need to be basically mature. And so that's sort of the lifespan we're launching, you know, six of those next year. I make lots of small bets. So I'm unlikely to, you know, sort of roll out a brand new trade show that, you know, where I'm risking a million dollars to pull it off. I'm more likely to drive five or six, you know, conferences where I know worst case, I lose a hundred thousand dollars on it in year one, you know, um, that it's just, it's just a smaller bet. From an audience perspective, you obviously have pretty isolated audience. I use like the firefighters and manufacturing, right? There's just like a lot of little overlap. Right. When you, when you think about monetization and commercialization of your team, do you have those in similar like pods that kind of work in isolation? Do you work cross network? How do you, how do you structure the team with, with such a array of, of verticals? So within the brands we have, so the, the content and the sales teams are sort of within the brand clusters and then everything else is a shared service. But the, the sales teams, while they are primarily responsible for selling within their cluster, there also is a program by which they can cross-sell into others because, you know, there is a certain segment of our clients that are, you know, they are in multiple business lines that we are in. And so it would drive me crazy at first when I would discover this big client, you know, in one sector that was also in another sector where we were getting no money, you know? Um, and so we've had a real focus on making sure that we are explaining to those clients that, oh, hey, we're also over in this area because they often don't think about all that Endeavor does. They think of us as the brands that they are used to doing business yes. with. And the other sector, they may or may not know the brands that we have. And so we've had some good success this past year at, at sort of expanding the the notion across our clients about what we can do for them and being intentional about explaining to them all the different industry verticals that we're in. That is like the advantage that the industry dives and the ones that use similar branding where, you know, Workweek is similar to Endeavor, where we have a house of brands with totally different branding. Well, we've advertised all the time, reach in and be like, hey, I want this one. And we're like, you actually have like four or five that you should be. Right. That's right. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated. So your events team, bless them, they they work across all of the conferences and events. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, 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 some of them do focus on trade shows and some of them on conferences, but yes, they, they, they are working across a bunch of different industries. That's exactly. That's awesome. And there's an event operations team and an event marketing team that are doing that. Giving a little bit away from Endeavor, but you know, I think you were in every definition of the word, a veteran of, of media, but also a thinker in the space. I mean, just understanding and B2B and studying the models of purchasing power of an audience and going away, you've been part of legacy brands and now this emerging company that's just doing so well. But media as an industry, I think, has a pretty bad rap still. And I'd love to just hear from you on the optimistic side, like what are people getting wrong? Why is the industry as a whole kind of catching so much heat for being a bad business? Fundamentally, what we do is connect audiences with clients that want to reach those audiences, right? I mean, I think people get too fixated on the medium of, of how you're making those connections, you know, and so they are just too enamored with, uh, you know, hey, I want to be an events company or I want to be a digital media company or we want to do lead gen. We think about it as, you know, all of these tactics have their place. And that's what I say. I mean, tactics go in and out of fashion, 
but they literally do go in and out of fashion and then back in again. Right. I mean, um, so, you know, right now digital media is down a little bit, you know, two years ago it, it was exploding. It's going to come back. It's just that different tactics, you know, people, people move their dollar advertisers, move their dollars to the latest fad. They try it out. It works for a while or it doesn't. And then they come back to things that were tried and true for them. I think that's the thing people get wrong about it. If I were a venture capitalist, I wouldn't invest in media, but there are private equity models that, that work here, but you have to buy at the right price. I mean, I do sometimes see people, you know, buying media assets and I'm like, I, I don't know how you get a return on that. You know, you overpaid there. Um, there's just not that you bought at a peak in the market or in the tactic and it's not going to keep going up. And so then they're left with just trying to get market share and, you know, it's, it's a tough game. There are lots of good competitors out there. I think the connecting the audience aspect is what's overhyped. You know, channels, channels definitely change. And someone recently, I read something is like all the most uh, emerging media companies really typically are just uh, that everyone like gets all the hype around. They're really just the first to own a channel. Well, uh, you know, and that's really what it is. It's not necessarily that they're amazing businesses it's that they dominated a new channel. And sometimes that channel goes out of way. This is how it goes. And it ultimately is an execution game, right? I mean, like you got to be good. You got to be creating good content. You got to be having, you know, having good relationships with your clients. You got to deliver on what you're promised. And sometimes, you know, you get into a vertical where the competitors aren't doing that and you can really, you know, score big by, by, by rolling up most of the business in that market. But if you're in a vertical where you have multiple competitors, like I said at the outset, I didn't want to go into a vertical where there were multiple competitors who were good at it because it, it is an execution game. And if you're not, if you're not in a place where you can out execute them, you're going to be in for a knife fight. That first place winner gets all the dollars, right? Um, I mean, right. and so especially right. when times get hard, uh, yeah. they're not going to stop going to that conference or trade show that everyone goes to. Um, it's just, that's right. it, it's just how it goes. So that makes, I mean, yeah, unless they make some big mistake, that's right. It, yeah. They're in the pole position. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think the thesis of just winning pole positions across verticals is so smart. It's also, you pointed this out when I answered my question of how we choose verticals, which I said, we look at existing trade shows and kind of who we could, if they have an existing audience, they said, Oh, that's similar to Sean and industry dive. And right, I was right. like, yeah. Uh, and then you told me how you do it. I'm like, man, we've done this all wrong. Uh, we should think about it this way, but uh, it's, it was a good counter narrative to, I think how a lot of people have approached choosing what audience to build for. Well, it's worked pretty well for Sean too, though. So, um, <laughs> so I mean, there, there are multiple, yeah, there are he, multiple he, strategies he, that work in this done, space. He's done he's quite done. well. Yes, he has. Uh, yeah. Uh, bless those multiples as, as, uh, as, as you said as well. You got, uh, those are, those are some good ones. Awesome. Well, I had one last kind of like uh, piece that I would love to just hear from you on, but is, you know, uh, you've been thinking about what Endeavor looks like in five years. Uh, and you, you know, that's that's your your role, as you just said. I'd love to hear a little bit of like how you see the business growing in five years. What does it look like? And and how does that kind of correlate to the industry trend over that same time period? You know, there are going to be fewer of these small companies that are still print centric. They are increasingly, you know, in trouble. And so the industry, I think, will be less fragmented than it was. And that's why, you know, those those in the pole position wind up winning and, and being the main place people go to spend their dollars to connect with those audiences. You know, AI is going to have an impact. It's already having an impact on the amount of search volume driving traffic to sites, which has been the main way that B2B has built their digital audiences. And so it's transforming that. 
you know, which means you're going to have to spend, we are going to spend more money to acquire digital audiences instead of just relying on them to come to us through search and let's convert them from unknown to known. You know, we're going to have to go proactively get them in places. And the social media, you know, social media was a good place for that. That's getting increasingly challenging as well. So, I mean, those are some of the challenges that are coming. I, I think everybody's trying to figure out how to better monetize first party data that we have, you know, in, in the long run. I think those of us in B2B who have, you know, resisted programmatic, you know, we're, we're, we're going to long outlast the companies that were just driving for traffic and, and selling programmatic ads. Cause we, we know who our readers are, you know, we can connect them with clients that want to want to reach them. And we just have to figure out the, the ways that clients are willing to spend money to reach those audiences you know, over the next five years. And that will evolve. Different things will come into fashion and out of fashion. And my approach is we're going to, we're going to do all of that. We're going to, we're going to offer the tactics they're willing to pay for. It, it is, uh, when it comes to offering marketing solutions to clients, it's like the only time that I think, uh, throwing spaghetti at the wall actually works because you just don't know what's going to work. And, uh, and consumer behavior is hard to guess. So right. that's the, the kind of mix of both. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. I deeply, deeply admire what you've executed. Uh, I think you're probably running the most unknown, uh, but well-run business <laughs> in the country, uh, in my opinion. And okay. I, I hope everyone here starts to follow you as well and, and follows the journey. And I look forward to, to next time that we can talk. I appreciate you having me on. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening. If you want deep insight and hot takes on the world of media, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend. I'll see you next time.